Awesome, y'all. Well, welcome to uh, Midweek Tonight. It's awesome being here. Uh, my name is Mick, and uh, my wife Ashley is right there. We got a little one-year-old wild man named Cassius, who I'm sure many <laughs> of you have met or uh, at least heard before. Um, and uh, it is, it's awesome being here. I know we've been here about four months now, and I mean it when I say that we feel like these uh, midweek meetings, they're not an obligation, they're not a duty, they are so life-giving to us. And uh, so much of it is because we've been welcomed in by, by all of you. And so we just want to say how special these times are and how much we I just hope to continue to grow with these. Anytime we open up the word, we fellowship, we hear good news, uh, we pray together, uh, only good things can happen. And so hopefully more of that will happen tonight. Uh, we'll be continuing our series on Genesis, and uh, we'll be picking up in Genesis 3. So if you have your Bible, start flipping over there. Uh, Jeff has done a great job kicking us off so far in Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, I know that he's a genuinely humble guy who does not like to be praised, uh, but we've just got to call a spade a spade. And we have to acknowledge the fact that our boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Right. Jeff Hickman in our community group. So thank you, bro. Appreciate you. And uh, with that, uh, pretty obvious forewarning that the quality of preaching and teaching tonight will be a significant downgrade. So set your expectations. But God's word will not return to him empty. Okay? We are opening the word. We got the Holy Spirit. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, but one thing, a couple of things that have really stuck with me from the last two lessons looking at Genesis 1 and 2 was the idea that in the beginning, God, you know, what a profound uh, statement that is about worldviews. And just those couple words that, that says so much about not only the direction of Genesis, but the direction of the entire Bible. It's a statement about who God is. And this book seeks to really stake that claim on exactly who God is, who we're called to be, what creation is all about. So many significant questions. Uh, the two creation accounts of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, I loved the fact that Jeff called that out, you know, that there are differences there. And why is that? What do each of these different accounts teach us? You know, can we hold these two up in tension and really learn about what God is trying to do through each of them and what he's trying to say about himself? Uh, it's a great reminder that it's God who originated life, that God provided, we receive. He directs, we trust. The independence from God was never something that uh, was part of this plan of his. And uh, I love the attention that was brought to the idea of good, goodness. That's all over Genesis 1 and 2. And I don't know about you guys, but when you read those chapters back to back, you just see the word goodness all over the place. And if you're anything like me, it can be so easy to sometimes focus on the brokenness of the world, which we're going to get to today, that I can sometimes neglect the fact that there's still so much good, right? right? We see so much brokenness, but we still see so much good. And God created this world good. And lastly, I love uh, the idea about how important our approach to Genesis is. Uh, and this cannot be stressed enough, because if we don't approach Genesis on its own terms, then we're going to make all sorts of really big mistakes as we read it. Uh, the first is we'll leave many of the most important questions that Genesis wants to answer for us unanswered. Secondly, we'll project and impose a lot of questions that it's not interested in at all on it, and we'll be confused and all that. And thirdly, we can end up with a totally skewed view of, of who God is, what our mission and vocation is, what humanity is all about, what creation was intended for, if we don't approach Genesis on its own terms. And I know I've struggled with a lot of these things, and I might be the only one, but a couple of examples uh, and ways this has manifested itself. I 
grew up non-religious in a city like Seattle, so there's a lot of doubt that you're kind of surrounded by, you grow up in. And I remember early on as a young Christian doing a Bible study with somebody, and they said, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me that somebody ate some fruit, and because of that, the consequences are genocide, murder, rape, all these horrible things that we see in the world. It doesn't feel like the consequences match the action that happened. And I was speechless. I had no word. I also remember because I approached Genesis with a very literal, modern mindset, I felt like I needed to justify why the earth was only 6,000 years old. And if we do have some younger creationists in here, no offense, but I was doing research on why dinosaurs weren't real, why God <laughs> planted them in the ground to confuse us. To, so I was like, after a while, I'm like, what am I wow. doing? I'm completely missing the point of what Genesis is trying to do. And the bummer about that is a lot of people fall into that trap. So they get really caught up in peripheral stuff, and they miss these massive theological claims that Genesis is trying to make. Genesis sets the stage for the rest of this grand narrative. And like Jeff mentioned, by using the word narrative or story or myth, that does not at all imply that this is made up or that this is a fairy tale or anything like that. What we mean by myth the narrative and story is the fact that this seeks to tell something that is so fundamental to who we are as human beings. It's not speaking on scientific terms. Come on. This is not like movies today where we can hop in 15 minutes in or a lot of the movies that Ashley loves, no offense. You can, you can miss the whole first half of the movie, jump in and be like, yep, I'm already caught up. I know where this is going. Didn't miss too much. Genesis is not like that. <laughs> yes, yes. Genesis is not like that at all, though. Like, not only the book, but these first couple chapters are so important. And if we misunderstand these, not that we'll have perfect clarity, but if we have a really big misunderstanding about what God is trying to convey and communicate, then the whole rest of the story is going to be off-center. So uh, when we made Jesus Lord, we were not only baptized into Jesus Christ, but we were baptized into committing ourselves to the fact that this whole story is true and it's good. Come on. We committed ourselves to the fact that uh, we read the scriptures and we participate in this story and we embody this story communally together. Yeah. That is what Come this on. story calls us to. And so let's dive into Genesis 3. And I'll kind of break it up like Jeff did last time. I will read a couple verses, discuss it, and then later on insert any questions, uh, additional things I missed, any thoughts you guys have. Uh, but starting in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And we'll stop right there and just really quickly give a, a kind of a quick overview. Jeff hit on this last time as well, but um, there's, you know, the snake, the serpent. Um, it's really, there's a lot going on in the background that we're kind of dropped into the middle of the story, right? It says God created the serpent, but it doesn't explain why the serpent went wayward. <laughs> you know, it doesn't try and explain what the origins of, of evil are. This story is about the fall of humankind. Mm -hmm. The focus is on humanity right here. So whatever the serpent is, it's representative of the source of evil that continues to pervade this world today. Mm -hmm. And real quick, I want to reread Genesis 2.16 for what God actually said so we can compare it. In Genesis 2.16, God said to Adam, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. A couple key points here, though, of how the serpent twists that, right? 
first thing he starts off with is not by outright contradicting God, but just really questioning. Mm -hmm. Anytime you ask, did somebody really say that? Mm -hmm. It's not good, right? Mm -hmm. Anytime we say that, we're trying to, like, are you sure that that person said that? Or it can even be more malicious than that. He addresses God differently, right? Uh, Jeff talked a little bit about this. There's Elohim, which is kind of used in the Genesis 1 creation story to talk about this kind of more macro God who's the creator of the universe. And then there's Yahweh Elohim, who's a much more personal covenant-keeping God that we see throughout Genesis 2. Which of those two terms do you think Satan chooses to use? Elohim. He wants God to be a little bit more distant and not that Yahweh covenant-keeping Elohim. And then he totally rewords the command. He doesn't include the fact that God said you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Mm-hmm. He emphasized what they're not supposed to do, and he expands what they're not supposed to do to any tree. Mm-hmm. And think of how much you can change the picture of God by getting some of it right. Mm-hmm. I know for me, when I became a Christian, I was shocked how many of the people that were most hostile were people that were, you know, grew up in churches that knew a lot of the commands of God, knew some of the stories, but just had this disfigured picture of God and were very hostile about it. Like my atheist friends, Muslim friends, they didn't care quite as much. But when we know a bit, a bit about God, we know a lot about God, but we're not really reflective on, man, what is my true picture of God like? And we can end up in some really dangerous places. I know my prayer every single day for my son is just, God, I pray that Cassius would just see you clearly as you are. And none of us will ever have a perfect picture of God while we're on this side of things. But how we see God totally impacts how we live our lives for him. The serpent doesn't just modify the command of God. He completely changes the perception of who this God is. And man, that can have a big impact. In verse 2, picking up from there, it says, The woman said to the serpent, The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The wild thing about this is the the woman had never even heard the command, right? This command was given before he was even created to the man. And so she does a pretty good job. Like, that's pretty close to what God originally said right here. I know the other day we were at Dwayne and Tawina's, and they love to do this thing where they start out, put everybody on the spot, and they say, let's share a scripture you've memorized recently. And kind of everyone in our group, like, when you're put on the spot, you know, it's like all of a sudden you can't remember a thing. And so everyone's kind of like... And the woman right here, she, you know, the serpent comes up on her and just asks this question, you know, and she's surprised, but she does a really good job of basically relaying what he says, but she does add a couple things and subtract a couple things. She adds a command, it seems harmless, but you must not touch it. God never said that, but she added that in there. And then she loses the word freely. God said you can freely eat of whatever tree you want. And losing that word might seem insignificant, but that's a big change. And so already we can see this game of telephone changing the original command to getting a little bit different over time. And the serpent's response, he continues to twist God's truth. Uh, he, he appeals whether or not this was the original ambition of Adam and Eve uh, to be like God. They, you know, he wants them to think like, you guys need to be like divine beings, not just humans. And he makes three counterclaims. He says they won't die. He says their eyes will be open. And he said they will know good and evil. And there was both truth and falseness in this, right? He spoke some truth. There were some of these things that happened, but he didn't talk about the cost that would come with it by disobeying God's command. 
But it's fair. I don't know if when you guys read this, but for me, there can be part of me that's like, well, what's so bad about knowing good and evil, right? Like, if we're supposed to follow God, isn't that fundamental? Like, how as Christians can we follow God if we don't know good and evil? And there's a lot of uh, theories and things that people throw out with this. But by far, the, what I find to be the most compelling view is that this Eden narrative presents humanity in its infancy, right? This is the first couple. This is man and woman. This is, Eden is a, a great, beautiful, flourishing place, but it's not perfect. It hasn't reached its maturity, and, and God created men and women to help bring that development to fruition, to its fullness. The Bible doesn't describe Eden as perfect, but as good. God created a partner with mankind to develop it. And uh, while he gives humanity these positive affirmations of what their vocation is, what they're called to do, the only negative command he gives them is this one command. When Mark and Lynn, they help us uh, with our uh, parenting, and uh, don't judge them for Cassius' behavior. They do a great job. That's on us. Thank God. But I remember they would tell us, they're like, they're like you guys, you got to just focus on one thing with it. You know, because we'd be like, don't twist over when you're changing your diaper. Like, don't touch the stove. Don't touch the outlet. And they're like, if you're just telling him no all the time, like his mind, he won't know what is good and what's bad. Just focus on one thing at a time. And in many ways, I see that parallel here. It feels like God is saying, like, you're in your infancy. Just don't do this one thing and trust me. And the picture that's painted is not that they will never have the knowledge of good and evil, but that there is a maturation process in our relationship with God. There's development that needs to happen in any relationship. And, it, and uh, the most important point is that they need to learn to trust God's way of doing things. Very simple command, and yet we know what's going to happen next. Verses 6 through 8, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave uh, some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Pretty sad state of affairs how much things have changed so fast. Um, but here we see a very important detail. God all over the place in Genesis 1 and 2, right? He's like, that's good, that's good, that's good. This is the first time where humanity takes the idea of what's good into its own hands, right? It says that Eve saw and she saw that it was good. Question that comes up, though, right here in verse, uh, I think it's verse 6. It says, uh, Adam, uh, she, gave, she also gave some to her husband who was there with her. Don't have a great answer for what that means, but just kind of planting that seed. That's a really interesting detail. And I don't know exactly what it means. Was Adam there kind of overhearing the conversation, you know? Was like, what does he was there with her mean? And why are all the yous plural between the serpent and the woman when he's talking to her? Just something to think about. The repercussions are very swift. They realize their nakedness and they hide from God. But what's so important about this is from the very beginning, we see the importance of free will to God. God is not presented as all-powerful while his creatures are completely powerless. In spite of all the risks involved, God chooses the way of less than absolute control for the sake of a relationship of integrity. He said there's no way that I can have a relationship with human beings if there's not some risk involved and if I don't give them genuine autonomy to make the right choices. And we all know that. We've experienced that in our own relationships as human beings. It resonates with our experience of what this world is like. 
God delegates power to the human, engages the human in the creative process, and leaves room for human decisions that truly count in the shaping of the future. He really does partner with us when he created this world, which is amazing. And we often talk about how God wants to use us, and there's definitely truth to that. But it's even deeper than that. God partners with us, right? With my wife, you know, if I said, yeah, I'm using my wife, that wouldn't, it wouldn't, I don't think she would like that. I don't think I would like that if she said it about me either. You know, partnership implies this deeper, much richer, like I am giving you so much responsibility for this. I'm helping you. I'm here with you. But I want to actually give this over to you um, to be able to make decisions that you want to make to create and develop this world um, in, uh, in important ways. Um, I think free will and this idea of how we reconcile free will and God's sovereignty is one of the most important questions we can uh, answer that influences how we view God. Uh, but I'm going to pause right there. I've done a lot of talking. Additional thoughts, disagreements, questions. What comes up for you guys in these first eight or so verses of Genesis 3? If anything, we could keep going too. Yeah. I think it's interesting when, uh, when Satan talks and he says, you'll not surely die for God knows when you give it, two of the three things Satan says are true. Hmm. Only one of them is a lie. Hmm. It's like, we gotta be, we gotta be really wise and with God to know the difference hmm. when yeah. we're being lied to yeah. by the evil one. Because sometimes it's gonna be the truth. Hmm. And I don't understand how all that would even work in my own life, but it's just interesting. Their eyes are open, hmm. and they do know good and evil. Yeah. It's a great point, Mark, right? And I think even in the temptation with Jesus, we see the same thing. Like Satan comes with some persuasive arguments. He comes with scripture, you know? Like it's a lot uh, easier to pull somebody away from the right track if you're, you're Satan uh, to uh, twist the truth than it is to just outright contradict it with no truth whatsoever. So I think that's a real astute point. Yeah, Dante. So uh, I was thinking about this, not, not about this exact passage, but about truth and lies and everything. My son is five years old, and sometimes he he goes pee-pee in his pants. And I'm like, yeah, did you pee-pee in your pants? And he hesitates to tell me the truth because he knows he might get a spanking. So there's this fear there. You know, he fears me, but I want him to respect me. Not that much. I don't want him to lie to me, right? So what do I what do? I do, right? So, so anyway, it's got me on the topic of thinking of truth and lie, and I thought about this. It's like, it's not, I, don't, I don't have the answers, but I know that, like, for example, Judas, when he said the thing about the, the poor, you know, hey, why this waste? Why this waste of money? This this perfume could have been sold and, and the money given to the poor. That is true, but his heart was not not reflecting what he was mm. saying with his mouth. I mean, he was he was telling the truth, but not not deep down. Deep down, where it really counts, where God sees, it was a complete lie because he didn't care for the poor. Mm. So. Um, Kind of like this guy, kind of like right here, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's telling the truth, but on deep down inside, it, it isn't really. It's just mm-hmm. a mask. Yeah. So um, that's as far as I can take it, as far as I understand it. But but um, but I've been thinking about that, you know. Yeah. So, it's a great point, and I think you know it's one of the reasons why if we just you know reduce God down to just His commands and we miss the narrative, you know, in Genesis, throughout the Gospels, throughout all of Scripture, then we just totally reduce God and those those commands just don't even make sense anymore and it totally changes who God is unless we can really have the full understanding of like who is he why is he doing this so 
Um, appreciate that, Dante. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm glad you read this because I've been thinking about this one scripture a lot lately, this mm -hmm. whole Eve interaction. And I just find it so interesting how, like you said, when she first started talking, she got the basic picture. God said we can eat a whole bunch of stuff. There's only one thing we can't eat, right? So mm -hmm. he, she tells Satan what the provision is. God has provided for us. Mm -hmm. And within a few questions, he changes God from a provider to an oppressor mm -hmm. who has more than you. Mm -hmm. And you mm. need to grasp that. Yeah. Wow. And this is the access point. Mm. And I think about, wow, that is such <coughs> the root of so much evil for us. That mm. grasping for what we think we're denied. Mm. And how she turned, he turned God from provider. She, but she, there was nothing that she was lacking. Mm. That being like God would have given her. That mm. she didn't already have. But he changed the frame. And I keep thinking too, I, and I keep going back to Philippians 2 and how wonderful Jesus is. Yeah. When it says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Mm. How Jesus, instead of trying to reach up, he goes down mm. from heaven to mm. earth to cross to hell. Yeah. I mean, he went down. And how that is so much the character of God. He's so humble. Mm. He actually goes down. And so, and so now it really got my mind thinking about ways in which, you know, as a fellowship, as myself, you know, are we focused on going down? Mm. Or have we taken on that worldly desire to to, to pump up mm. status? Who's better than me? Who's better? Mm. And that's so not Jesus. It's mm. so not God. Mm. And so reading that and just seeing how in that he went from God is every God's got me to oh he's keeping something from me. Mm. I gotta go get now. Yeah. And how that's such a root for us now of evil. So it really it really struck me. Man, great point. And how quick it can happen. I mean, mm. what an awesome point. Yeah. Go ahead. We got a lot of hands raised. Oh, sorry, over here, and they moved down this way. Go ahead. Oh, oh. I, I love your point about um, that he mixes truth with lies, and it's so important that we, you know, study to show ourselves approved, but he also, like, he, from the beginning, he is planting doubt, mm -hmm. and he is scheming, and I love the verse in Ephesians that says, Put, uh, Ephesians 6, 11, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So from the beginning, we know that he is He is plotting, he is planting those seeds of doubt, he's scheming, but God always gives us a way out mm. with that full armor, and it's something that you put on daily, like you've got to put that stuff on daily. Mm. And that really spoke to me just from the beginning. I love that. Thank, Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. This is a this is a great discussion because a couple of weeks ago when Jeff was talking, like the same thought came up and it came up again. And so, I've heard people say before, like, why would God put, you know, people in that position to, like, like he's he's playing with us. Mm -hmm. You know, why would God put put Adam and Eve in a position <coughs> where they would essentially fail? And. Um, so I'm a big why person, and, and I'm like, okay, he put curiosity in us, but he also put the choice. He put choice. So it would have made sense, like in my linear mind, it would have made sense for God to like not give us that desire because I'm like, why would Adam and Eve want to be like God? Like why, why were they even interested in that if they had everything? then it doesn't make sense why they would even be curious in that. Mm. But if God had had not given them that, then the love would not be the type of love that God is, which is a 
um, a genuine love. It's a free love, right? It would have instead it would have been a um, what do you call it? Like a like like a like a fort, like your your force. Your robotic. Thank you. That's good. I love you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 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 So instead, instead it would have been a robotic love, which I I bring this up because people have have said before, like, why didn't God just make us follow? blindly and then this would have all been perfect Mm -hmm. but that's not what we know from God like that's not the type of relationship he wants so I just think it's an it's interesting um, to just see that we had the choice and it was beautiful that God gave us the opportunity to make the choice Um, but without that choice it would we wouldn't have the relationship that we have so it's almost like like not good that it happened but it yeah it's, yeah. it's kind of like um, ironic. Yeah. That's the word. Yeah. yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, and I think that's a great question to wrestle with. But I think a lot of people would like kind of the more philosophical side would even say, you know, is love can love even exist without choice? Like if we're pre-programmed, yeah, is it robotic love or does love just cease to exist at all? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, to me. Uh, I thought about two things. I think one thing that Jim talked about two weeks ago while you were talking about when you started defining what is good. And I think I've been thinking about that a lot and I think it's so dangerous for me to start defining what is good for me. Mm-hmm. And I think as I'm praying about things, I'm like, God, like I actually don't know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what you're talking I know what I'm asking. I know what my desire is. But I don't think I can grasp what is good for me. Like yeah. I, in my finite mind, I can say, okay, maybe this will be good for us and Dwayne and I to have this thing. But ultimately, I think this is so sobering when I don't walk with God with that kind of humility, that kind of like, okay, you're God, I'm not. I want to present my desires because you love here in my heart. But ultimately, please help define what is good. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think for other people too with family, I'm like, God, just do this with my brother because this is like, and I'm like, oh, I, I don't know. I'm just praying, yeah. but I think I reading this, I want to have that type of humility, surrender, and reverent trust in God. That God, please get define what is good for me. Help mm-hmm. me to see, like, like Romans 12 says, His will is good, pleasing, and perfect. Mm-hmm. Like I want That's His right. good, pleasing, and perfect will of my my life, and not push my agenda so much. And if He's pushing back to trust that, okay, maybe this isn't the good that I want yeah. from God. Mm-hmm. Maybe God is good. Maybe if he's saying no, that maybe, maybe that, that isn't good and I have to let him decide that. So that's kind of been something that I've been thinking about and praying about a lot. But when you're talking about um, Jesus, when he was tempted, I I was actually doing a Bible study with a friend the other day and we're talking about how Jesus gets it right, right? Eve didn't get it right, but Jesus does get it right. When he's tempted, he like he calls scripture he just says oh yeah like satan is trying to make him doubt god or you can do this but he just responds with like this is the truth and i love that as we follow jesus we get to see how he came and got it right and how he did that so i can follow him and see oh like if the roles were reversed if this was in this role in this place it would be a completely different conversation Mm. with satan because he knew how to respond to him so I just found those two things as we think about Jesus and the garden and how he came and how Eve didn't get it right and how he, he gets it right. It just, 
I just found find that book fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, just to encourage you, I know you probably don't do it perfectly, but it sounds like you have a very like dependent heart on God. You know, mm-hmm. in terms of how you talk to God in your prayer mm-hmm. life, even though you're asking those questions, like you know, we're not seeing like the independence from Adam mm-hmm. and Eve. You know, mm-hmm. as much in you. But again, I know you don't do that perfectly. Like none of us do between. Them. Yeah, Tracy. Um, you know, something you said just now that I never thought of was that it wasn't necessarily they could never eat of that tree. He just said, right now. Like, it doesn't tell us. The narrative, like you were saying, it's a maturation process. They weren't ready, you know, and he had a plan to take mankind along step by step by step. Because I just always thought, oh, we would just spend in blissful, you know, ignorant, frolic here around the garden forever. And, you know, eat whatever. um, But that's not necessarily what that's saying. I mean, he just said, don't do it right now. Like, if we tell our teenager or your son or whoever, right now, don't touch the stove. When you're 20, you need to touch it and cook. <laughs> so if God has a, had a maturation plan, I never had, I never thought of it before. And she just rushed it. Because yeah. that's my tendency is to want something that God may have and plan, you know, later in a step and you know, a form of steps that are the way He will mature my life or my whatever. But I just want to rush ahead and get it now. Mm. So it's not like knowing good and evil. It's not like he says it's evil for you to know. He just says, you know, right now, no. Mm. Everything else right now, not that right now. Mm. You know, they would obey the millennium later or whatever. They could have been, okay, now step two. I love that okay, point. Yeah, well, I think one clue, I appreciate you sharing that, Chris, and I think one clue kind of, you know, as we get towards the end, and we may not be able to get to it all today, I know we're at the 29-minute mark, but is that, um, you know, when they're cut off from Eden, you know, one of the things that God basically says is like, hey, we we can't have them eat from the tree of life, you know, and so it's that almost idea of like, man, with the fallen condition they're in, like they can't be immortal, you know, at this point in time, and so it's this really sad reversal of, Adam being tasked with Eve to guard and cultivate Eden to then being locked out, you know, mm-hmm. with the cherubim and the flaming sword mm-hmm. of like, nah, this is this is closed off to you now. Mm-hmm. But to your guys' point, you know, Tawina Petal, God doesn't stop the story there, right. Right? right? And the rest of this whole story is his redemption plan of That's like, right. we are going to make this work. I'm going to do everything in my power mm-hmm. to not violate your free will, but to bring you back to me. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, do we have one more hand? Yeah, Michelle. Um, it, it, just with the whole good and evil thing, it, it helps me understand, like, my definition of good and God's definition of good are two different definitions. Mm. And realizing that, because when, and even looking in, you know, Romans 8.28, like, mm. God will work in the good and in all things. Like, mm. I would not classify the crucifixion as good. Mm. That's not good to me. Like, it shouldn't be Good Friday. That's yeah. not a good day. Um, but to God, it is good. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things where God is like, this is good, this is good, this is good. And Eve is like, no, this is good. Mm-hmm. And and that's how I am. It's like, no, well, this, this looks pleasing. It looks like it's tasty. Mm-hmm. It's good enough to eat. It should be fine. Mm-hmm. It's good in my definition. Mm-hmm. But that definition is not... God's definition of good. Yeah. And that's that's hard. 
I can yeah. totally relate to that. I know even when I studied the Bible, like there were certain things I was like, yep, that's obviously bad. But there were certain things and like lifestyle that I was like, is that bad really? Like, I don't know. And maybe it was just because of my background, but it was only like through time and through trusting God that I was like, wow, I see the destruction of some of these things that God says are destructive, uh, but only after obeying and getting some distance from it. Um, yeah, one more. And then we'll keep I was just going to say that to me it brings to mind probably my biggest single struggle in life is always the same question, can I trust you, God? Yeah. It's like, can I trust you with this part I don't see? Can I trust you with... And I think we don't always see that that's kind of what the wrestling is in our heart. And the only way I know to get around that is knowing him better. Mm. Like literally stepping into, I, I just, I can't shortcut how badly I need to know God. Mm. Because someone else every day is certainly working on me not believing he is who he is. Mm. So if I'm not working on really getting to know him, I'm going to have those lies coming to me all day long. So it's just such a reminder of our need to just know God enough to trust him deeply. Yeah, and if like that's one of the big themes is trust, you know, that I see here for sure. Do you guys have eight more minutes than you? Yes. Or should we cut it off there? Okay, well, I know we're like the 30th awesome. minute mark. Okay, we'll go for like eight more minutes. Uh, power through. If you got to leave, feel free to take off as well. Picking up in verse 9. So it says, uh, but the Lord God, sorry, that was a very uh, weird place to stop. Uh, but verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> then it says, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and so I ate, and we'll cut it off there for the time. Um, being, but isn't it amazing? I know it's so easy to laugh because Adam just looks ridiculous here. You know, we're gonna get to that in a minute. Um, but isn't it amazing that God strolls up and, like we so often see in the Gospels, too, he just asks questions. You know, he doesn't bring the hammer down, he doesn't say, Hey, I know what you did. He asks a question. And what do questions do? They force us to just get reflective, to take ownership of things. God doesn't want. Adam, to just, it's not all about the repercussions. It's about, do you understand what you did? I'm asking you these questions to engage with you. And it's question after question after question. What's really interesting is uh, Adam, you know, Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Um, what's really interesting is that when they realize they're naked, it says here that they sew fig leaves on, but there's no hiding. What is it that causes them to go into hiding? It's when they hear God coming. Right. And so Adam is either right. lying here or he's self-deceived, but he did not hide, um, you know, because he found out he was naked. He hid, sewed some fiddlies on him, they were hanging out, and then they heard God coming, and that's when he hid. This is the introduction of shame into the world. You know, in Genesis right. 2.25, it says they were naked without shame. And these are the repercussions of what That's guilt right. does. And when God asked him a question, it's a really relevant question. He said, who told you you were naked? The serpent didn't say anything about him being naked. God didn't say anything about him, him being naked. This wasn't some manufactured external guilt trip by somebody. This was intrinsic to Adam. He mm -hmm. ate it, and he just knew. Oh, man, this is a violated conscience. Something just changed. Mm. You know, my condition, my conscience is violated right now. And what mm. I did was wrong. And he knew he was naked. 
And then we get to this epic line where Adam says, the woman you put at my side. I think the most amazing thing about this is, you know, obviously it's very clear that he tries to scapegoat Eve. Um, you know, thank God that problem is resolved in our world today. Man, <laughs> not blame anybody. Thank you for I know just for me, it is wild. Ash, when we read this, I just I heard your cackle a little bit. She was loving this because I know even with stuff like now that we have a, a little one-year-old, right? Like the keys go missing and I'm like, is this Ashley's fault or is it Cassie's fault? And 90% of the time, it's my fault. I put it somewhere, but right away, I'm like, somebody's got to get blamed right now because we are running late as always and it's usually my fault. But the amazing thing about this is not only does Adam blame Eve, but then he says, God, this woman that you put with That's me. That's right. Yeah. God. We think Peter's bold. Like, this is really bold. Peter tried to stop Jesus from, you know, going through God's mission because he thought that was best. Here, Adam just straight up blames God. That's right. That is a bold, bold move um, that doesn't go well for Adam. Um, <laughs> God, questions, uh, God questions Eve. And, uh, you know, unlike the man, she can actually rightly claim that she was deceived. You know, she also shifts the blame to the serpent, but she doesn't blame God, which is pretty interesting. We'll pick back up in verse 14, and we'll close out here. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, uh, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust he will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. So a ton going on here. Obviously, the whole condition of Adam and Eve changes. The curses are introduced. We'll see this time and time again, especially throughout the Old Testament, this idea of curse and blessing, right? If you do X, Y, and Z, you will be blessed. If you do X, Y, and Z, you will be cursed. The serpent here is cursed. The ground is cursed because of man, but there's no curse assigned to uh, Eve. Also, mankind as a whole is not cursed at this point. It's not until Cain uh, kills Abel that God says, all right, there's a curse over mankind now. This is just too much. This is as bad as it can possibly get. Um, and here, when, when we see the condemnation against the, uh, the serpent, hope we don't take that as, yep, every time I see a snake, that's Satan, that's the worst, many of us don't like him, but this is more directed towards the adversary in general, this curse and this uh, enmity between uh, the woman and her offspring. Um, the seed, uh, this idea of, you know, your seed, your offspring, uh, different people uh, view that differently. Some people think that this seed or offspring is Israel. Some people think it's talking about the church. Some think it's talking about humanity in general. Some think it's talking about Christ. As Christians, though, when we read that he will crush your head, it's pretty difficult not to read Jesus into that, right? You know, about him crushing Satan's head. Uh, the woman's consequences. There's a couple things that I just want to hit on this real quick, then we'll wrap up. Uh, so it's really interesting that even in the woman and the man's curse, there's still all these flashes of hope. 
um, you know, childbirth. It says that child, you know, that her, her birthing process is going to be really painful. So there's always this reminder of the consequences of sin. And yet, when you're giving birth, you're bringing life. And here we see, uh, you know, Eve give birth to Cain and Abel. And so it's this amazing thing where it's like, hey, there's this curse. There are these consequences that I'm describing to you here. And yet there's always hope intertwined for you in this. That's right. Uh, rule over you. Man, that is not, uh, this is not easy language uh, to, to, uh, to talk about. Um, you know, some debate whether, you know, this rule over you, this submission was before the fall, if this was a consequence of the fall. This desire for your husband, some think this is a sexual desire, but most think that this is describing the condition of just the friction between men and women. And, uh, in this case, women wanting the role uh, of man and kind of contributing to, to some of that independence that we see in this story. But what's really important is that uh, when we see this word rule, you know, I feel like this scripture can get used a lot as a justification for like male tyranny, right? Where, uh, you know, he will rule over you, all that. What's really important here, though, is that this is not justifying male tyranny at all. Um, any more than it's saying, hey, we should make childbearing as difficult and as painful as possible, right? When we read this, is that what we do? Like God says, hey, childbearing is going to be difficult and painful. Do all of us, as a consequence of the fall, say, hey, let's make it as tough as it can be? Of course not. This is not a command from God. This is describing the consequences of sin. And it's the same way with that. God is describing this friction, this unfortunate part of the fall. Lastly, man's consequences, the final word is directed against the man. The ground is cursed, lifelong toilsome labor, and ultimately death. Uh, you shall return to the dust from which you came. Um, what's amazing about this, too, is even though the, toils, the toil will be very difficult, uh, work will be hard for man, uh, God still in the curse says, man, this is going to provide food for you, though. This is going to sustain you. Right. We see God after the fall. What does he do? He makes garments. His first, the first thing he makes after the fall is to cover them up. So throughout all this cursing, we again and again see hope and That's redemption. Right. Yeah. And that is the story of this Bible. From here on out, when we see what we see God do for the next 66 books throughout all the chapters, it's God's redemption plan to allow us to dwell with him uh, eternally. So um, that is it for the night. Wrapping it up. Sorry we went a little bit long, but that was some awesome discussion, guys. Thank you. Good teacher here. I don't have to teach every week. <laughs> Right, how you feel, man? Oh, man. This is great discussion. Great energy in the room. Yes. I think God used you, man. And, uh, you know, um, you know, just for those of you don't, that don't know, I mean, both of us are, you know, we're in seminary. You know, we're taking classes. We're learning. We're growing. Um, and that's why I was really hoping to give him an opportunity, you know, to share the things that he's learned. You know what I mean? And uh, so you'll hear more. This is not, this is not a one-time thing. Um, I'm learning from you. We can learn from each other, right? And uh, we can help people, you know? So um, I hope, hope tonight, I know tonight was good for you because it, it was really good. Um, just wanted to make sure, and if I mess something up, guys, just pipe in. But I know this Friday night, um, the Thrive Ministry, uh, our singles ministry is having something in the Lighthouse, 7.30 to 9. Uh, it's a Devo and Discussion, Purity Culture 2. Oh, there you go. September 30th, 730 to 9 in the Lighthouse. So that's uh, Friday night. Just want to also make sure you guys know there's also a singles conference in Chattanooga at the very end of October, October 28th to 30th. You can go to our website. You can uh, log in, 
register, whopping $10. I know, it's awesome. You can do this. You can do it. Um, also want to let you know, uh, October the 16th is uh, kind of the first Sunday that we're doing a, um, a 10 a.m. service as a church, right? We, we've announced it multiple times. Uh, that'll be the first Sunday it happens. However, <laughs> um, in order to make the one service on a Sunday work, that's right. What are we doing? <laughs> Commu communities have to. Some communities no. have to not go, uh -oh. Uh -oh. Or, else, or else we're just not going to fit. Right. And, uh -oh. and we won't be true to our principles that we believe in, which is we need to meet in small groups as well. Uh -huh. Right? I mean, if we say that's what we're about, then we need to figure out how to do that as well. So this again. So don't think of these Sundays where we meet separately as oh man, it's more of a no. This is an opportunity to experience the smaller environment. That's right. The environment even Matt talked about on Sunday so well, right? Um, and experience some different things. So um, right now, this was a switch. We were supposed to do it later, but something happened. We switched with in town or campus or something. We were trying to be gracious. So we got to come up with a plan. We don't have it just yet, but we're going to have one very soon. We're faithful, and we're going to get the word out to you. It'll, it might be we meet all together in one place. It might be that we're meeting by family groups or maybe one or two family groups will get together. Something like that. But I'm at least letting you know that's what's going down on the 16th. Here's the big thing, though. This is big. You can't, can't you got to remember this. If you are serving in the children's ministry, yeah. you cannot just not show up to church. <laughs> you feel me? Yeah. So, yeah, what am I supposed to do? Be an adult. Figure out a son. Right? Don't, but don't be like shady and just not show up. That's not being a good adult right there, right? Okay? So let's handle our business. <laughs> if you're serving in the children's ministry, or you're, or you're an usher, or you're what, whatever you might be doing at a Sunday service, please find a replacement. And if you cannot do that, then you need, to, you need to show up and do your thing, you know, and we'll figure it out, you know. And maybe if you your family group might meet at a different time to help you out. You know, these are things that we can work out. So please, please take care of your responsibilities. And I think all of us are going to get better at this. We're going to mature. Like, you know, God gives us time to mature. So we're going to mature and, and get better and better at this. And I hope that we can make the most of our, our opportunities meeting in a smaller group. So those are the things I know off the top of my head. Is there anything else I'm forgetting? Like announcements live. So, and we're still figuring out new family groups and all that. So you might be like, I don't know about this or that. It's okay. We're figuring it out. Lots of conversations are being had. So we're going to figure it all out. All right. And if you don't have a family group, just come up to me and Lynn or somebody. We'll try to figure it out, help you out as best we can. Um, but that's kind of the, the thing we're figuring out too. So a lot going on. We're family. We figure it out. We love each other. And we got problems with each other. We talk it out. You know what I mean? Yes. If you have kids with their campus students, we just try to give them a little bit of support. So um, you can talk to me if you want to contribute for their gap for their time. Yeah. There you go. Oh, campus students are broke a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. They are. In gas stations. <laughs> Amen. I think that's it. Uh, go get your kids because I know it's a little bit after. And if you want to huddle up with your group, that's cool. But I know it's a little late, so you figure out what you want to do. Love you guys. All right.